a Podcast One production. Hey, this is Chris Russell and welcome to Agriminders. It seems like every day there's a new fad in food. We're being told to eat less sugar, cut down on red meat, but at the same time we need to eat more fibre and adding more probiotics to our diets. But these fads are both fickle and often short-lived, so long-term predictions are very difficult. For farmers looking to capitalise on growing food trends, Investment in new technology and production is extremely risky and the success of these ventures notoriously hard to predict. So how do Australian producers determine what to set up for and what trends are likely to continue both locally and overseas in the next, say, decade? To guide us through this and joining us from the UK is our agriminder today, Julian Mellenton. Julian is the director and founder of New Nutrition Business, a specialised consultancy company which is recognised globally as a key advisor to both governments and food distributors in regards to the key trends in foods, beverages and nutrition. A very warm welcome to you to Agriminders, Julian. And that's a fantastic introduction. Thank you very much, Chris, and I'm delighted to be here. Well, Julian, you're an expert without any doubt, probably the only expert I've ever spoken to at length in this whole food trend business, a science, can I call it, of food trends. Why do food trends change so arbitrarily from time to time? Well, that's a very good question, and and you'll be pleased to hear they don't change arbitrarily. They tend to change very slowly over quite a long time horizon because although it looks as if in our industry things change frequently. The reality is that's just the media making it look that way and creating stories. If you actually go and look at the underlying changes in consumer behavior or uh, technologies that make changes possible, you can generally see those things evolving over a 10, even 20-year period. So what do you think controls these trends? Is it, is it the market? Is it the science? Is it consumerism? What, what is the, the master stroke here in deciding where, which of these trends get up and which don't? It's, it's no one thing. The, everything is multifactorial. So what we do is when we're looking at the evolution of a trend is we look at consumer behavior. So we look at consumer research, what people say they believe, um, what they say they want to do, and we look at what they actually do. So we look at supermarket sales and you can see you know, which products, which categories are going up and going down. We look at technology because often uh, new directions just aren't possible without the technology to move them move them forward. You know, it's all very well thinking of creating product X, but unless the technology is there to enable you to do it, it's just not not going to happen. We keep up with ingredients, with nutrition science, and then there's companies' own competitive activity because it's important to remember that sometimes companies create markets as well. They don't always spring from the consumer. So we look at about ten different broad data points all year long, and we've done this for years, and we take all this quantitative and qualitative data and we feed it into our algorithm. That's the word everyone uses all the time for everything these days, but we we created ours 10 years ago, and that enables us to kind of rank and prioritize the growth trends. And we focus very much on where the growth's going to be. And um, the important thing is, um, you know, in our industry, the change is actually fairly slow. Uh, Anyone who says 
you read in the media, you know, chia seeds are going to be big this year and quinoa the year after that, and then something called teff the year after that. That's just some that's just some stuff that some journalist has made up in order to fill the acres of white space they have to fill in on their website or in their magazine. And that usually has no analytical basis to it whatsoever. But if you look at consumer demand for protein, which has been increasing steadily over the past 10 years, or fewer carbohydrates or higher quality carbohydrates, or people's embrace of fat, their acceptance increasingly that maybe saturated fat isn't as bad as we thought it was, all those things have been evolving for a long time. And it's usually very clear to see that well in advance. So I, I must say I get the impression that some of these so-called trends are, are actually created, particularly by large supermarket chains. A good example for that would be hormone-free chickens. Now, there haven't been hormones used in chicken feeding in Australia since 1955, but this is a new product that was brought out two years ago. Another one was permeate-free milk. Now, permeate is just milk. Um, you know, it's milk after the cream's been taken out. But again, they make it sound like it's a good thing to have permeate-free milk. And this then becomes a trend and it goes on the label and people buy it. I mean, how do we discern between the created um, trends, if you like, and trends that have got some basis? Yeah. Well, that's. Uh, I think it's important to distinguish between marketing and long-term growth trends. So let's take the hormone-free chicken thing. I entirely understand. I'm sure hormones have not been used for 60 or 70 years. But what that is, is the marketing people in the company and in the supermarket responding to the bigger consumer trend, which is fear of things in their food that might be bad for them. So you know, no artificial additives, no preservatives. That's those sorts of messages you see on food products in Australia and everywhere else all the time. So all that's happening there is this bigger trend for things to be free from what's bad is picked up on by marketers who say, oh, well, let's talk about something being hormone-free. And they've probably got some piece of lightweight consumer research that says people like that message and the hormone-free thing will appear. And it might be there for three, four, five years. Does it make a big difference to sales? They really find that hard to quantify, actually. It's often just marketers trying to flag out something new to justify their jobs, keep it interesting. But when you actually break down and say, does it make a big difference within the bigger trend of people wanting things that are free from what's bad, it's really hard to do that. So often these flags are actually just symbols of the bigger trend that's going on in the background. But the fact they have some success, even for a few years, just shows the power of the supermarket in all this. How powerful and how effective are the supermarkets in determining which trends are going to get up and which trends aren't? That's a, that's a good point. Uh, they're not as powerful as they think they are, and they're not as powerful in the total picture. Supermarkets tend to run after things rather than create them. There are some good people in supermarkets, but if you're an imaginative, creative, dynamic person, that's actually not where you go for your career. To be perfectly honest, you'd be better off being a farmer creating some dynamic new value-added beef brand than working in a supermarket. So supermarkets are very much on the tail end of the trends. These days, we're all like corks floating about on the ocean, and the consumer trends come through, and the tide rises, and you rise with them or you sink with them. And a lot of these trends you see manifested in the media, and particularly social media. You know, that the power of social media in influencing what people think and choose is pro probably number one. It's far ahead of where the supermarkets are. So they follow on behind. They, they like to think they're creating them, but really they're following on behind a lot of the time. So um, do I get the impression that experts then are getting less and less influential, that it's more about what people read on the internet or what the supermarkets put out in social media that's going to affect their view about what's good for them or not? than it is about 
wow, I must go and check that data out and see if the science actually proves that. That's um, a pretty good summary, actually, I would say. Um, Essentially, what's happened is that uh, nutrition experts have shot themselves in the foot over the past 20 years by having a debate about what is or isn't healthy for you and forgetting that that happens in the public domain. And it's fine putting your your point of view in the media. And I think uh, two good examples of how badly this has played out are eggs. So people were told back in the 1990s, eggs are bad for you because they contain something called cholesterol. So you should reduce their consumption to three times a week. And then they were good for you. And then they were bad for you again. And they're good for you because they're a source of protein. And then it's quite easy to find a study published somewhere in the media that says they're bad for you. So consumers arrive at the point of view that these experts can't make their own mind up. They can't agree amongst themselves. So I'm going to do my own research and make up my own mind based on what I can find out and what fits in in my lifestyle. And actually, in fairness to an awful lot of people, they are actually surprisingly good, some of them, at going out and finding out what the real information is. And then they talk to their friends about it. So that's the kind of vehicle through which this influence happens. And you often find dietitians railing against certain eating patterns and saying, you know, low carb is unhealthy or this is unhealthy. And you think, well, you know, hardly anyone consults a dietitian anymore. If you look at the consumer research data, we just did research across five different countries, including Australia, actually. Um, Only about 20% of people consult a dietitian if they want information about health and nutrition. More than 50% of people's first port of call is the internet. So doctor internet is what decides everything. And then the the second port of call is your friends and relations. And the experts, the dietitian, the doctor, way down there, 20%, some countries even less, as low as 5%. Because people's confidence in their point of view has been undermined by what they perceive as changing information. So that's interesting. I mean, we, we our ag reminder a few episodes ago was uh, Jane Hardlicker, who was the CEO at that time of the A2 Milk Company. Um, now, she was very adamant and very politely said to me when I pushed her on the data that supported $1.2 billion worth of sales and I think $640 million worth of EBIT without the data present. And she very politely said to me, it's the customers that are important to us, not the scientists. And that seems to me there's a lot of companies these days are quite happy to put their hard-earned behind what the customer thinks, even if there is nothing coming out of anything they could call a peer-reviewed journal that supported their their ideas. That is an extremely good point, and it's a good example you've chosen. And it, actually, it, it's not fiction. There's, a, there's a, a way of thinking, a part of strategy that we call feel the benefit. And in fact, what consumers do is it, they buy something that they believe, they feel, makes a difference in their life. And it doesn't matter if the science hasn't caught up yet. So in the case of A2, that resolves people's digestive wellness problems. Clearly, it does work because, what is it, 10% of the Australian liquid milk market is A2 milk. Um, They have about 6 or 7% share of the infant formula market in China. Consumers aren't actually stupid. They will try something, and if it works for them and they feel better, they'll catch up with it. What often happens, I think, is the science is behind the people because the people are subjecting themselves to enormous experiment, huge study, and if if they find it works for them, then they buy it again. So often I think science has to humbly take a step back and say, well, what is it that we're missing that these people are experiencing? And and nutrition and your experience of it is highly personalized. You know, the old, day of one, old days of one size fits all eating patterns 
are entirely discredited. There's like there's no basis on which you can uh, say that everyone should have the same kind of diet. It's not even two or three patterns. You know, there's 23 million Australians, so there's probably about 15 million different eating patterns that suit all the, the different individuals. And, and one of the really good examples of feel the benefit is Red Bull. You know, you're all, everyone's familiar with Red Bull, the energy drink. You know, that came out of Asia. And what's the benefit you feel? It gives you a shot of stimulation to get through the day, or if you're 24, go on partying all night long. And when those, that product surfaced in Europe, supermarkets refused to stock it. They said, there's no science behind this. It's weird. We have nothing that says consumers want this. So they developed their own alternative distribution channel. Then they went on to the US. They got the same reaction for the supermarkets. They did the same alternative distribution. And it's at least, uh, I think, an $8 billion US dollar turnover business. And it's one of the most profitable segments in the world because the consumer felt the benefit. And I think it's important not to lose sight of that. It's, it's to, to look at what people experience and say, yep, we have to pay attention to that. Well, that's fascinating. Well, now, can I come back to something you talked about a bit earlier, which is you're talking about low carbs and low fat and high fat and high carb and everything. If we look, if we consider them sort of nutritionally in very broad terms, drivers being protein, fat, sugars and carbs, it seems to me in my lifetime we've swapped between these as being good or bad or high or low or whatever. Almost, you say it's not a quick process. It seemed quite quick to me at times. Um, how, there must be a universal truth somewhere in there about what is, you know, what is well balanced, what isn't, and and so on. You know, what should people really? What what has science told us about the truth of all those up and down trends? Well, it's an interesting word, truth, isn't it? Because we're often told things are truth, and then we learn new facts later that force us to change our mind. And I think, if anything, we've been guilty over the past 40 years of believing that there is a truth, which we've all been encouraged to consume low-fat this, low-sodium that. And we were told that's the truth. But actually, as the science has evolved, we discovered that wasn't the truth. So I think anyone who tells you that there is a truth and a one way to do things is, one, misleading, and two, just isn't keeping up with the evolution of the science because nutrition science is still fairly early stage. You know, an awful lot of things that we take for granted have only been discovered in the course of the past 40 or 50 years. Because the information is changing, our point of view must, must change as well. And I think what's really sad is how people who are in a you know, position of providing information are often absolutely blind to, to changes in information because it doesn't line up with what they, they want to believe. So let me give an example. If you'd asked me about dairy fat 15 years ago, I would have said, because that's the truth we were told, yes, saturated fat is bad for you, linked to cardiovascular disease, we should all consume less. But I allowed my brain and all my colleagues here, my brain to be open to new information. And what I've learned, and the science is extremely clear about this, is dairy fat is just fine. It's not linked in any sense to cardiovascular disease or diabetes or anything bad for you whatsoever. In fact, it, the science, if anything, says that consumption of dairy fat might lower your risk of heart disease. It certainly lowers your risk of diabetes. So this is the difficulty when people talk about a truth. You just have to be willing to take a step back and just evolve with the information that comes through. You know, and if the science in 10 years' time is telling me that that's not true, I will change my mind. <laughs> so, Julian, what about the, the uh, concept of indulgence versus the concept of health? 
Um, and we, one of our most successful companies in Australia was a little company called the King Island Dairy Company. And if you work for them and you ever mention the word light or low fat, you got fired within about five minutes. It was marketed entirely on indulgence. Um, and I get the feeling that if you unashamedly tell everyone that it's triple cream and indulgent and it tastes amazing, people kind of override their natural instinct on health issues. Uh, how powerful has that indulgence issue been, you know, in people's success in marketing food? Um, I think you can fairly say that the two two most powerful things that motivate consumers are on the one hand health and on the other hand in uh, indulgence. So those have been the biggest growth areas for the past 20 years. But what's even more successful is permission to indulge. And that's where someone has something that is indulgent and pleasurable, but they can feel okay about their choice. So you may be familiar with um, Belvita breakfast biscuits, for example. You, you've seen those. They talk about slow energy release. That is a great example of marketers giving people permission to indulge in a sugary cookie by saying it's got the energy from the fiber to get you through the morning. So people really, really like that. But I think what's happening is when you talked about the indulgent dairy, people do their own research online. They discover that when it comes to dairy fat, there probably isn't as much to worry about as they thought. So they say, okay, that's okay. That gives me permission to have some of that product. So it's not necessarily in their mind conflicting with health at all because they've discovered there's nothing to be afraid of. You asked me a question earlier on about hormone-free meat. That's a perfect example of taking away the fear of consuming something. So the fear of consuming fat has gone away. Therefore, it's okay for me to have, have more of it. So, Julian, I, when I was brought up, you know, and I don't want to age myself here, but, you know, we didn't have any. There was no McDonald's, no fast food. The only fast food I remember was a little bit of Chinese and Roy's roast duck just around the corner. But that was it. So we had our meals basically consist of the traditional breakfast, lunch and dinner. And then straight when I finished my work at university, I went to America. Well, that was a wake-up call. They kind of just graze all day. And the industry in America was less about a really good meal for breakfast, lunch and dinner are more about grabbing some bar or something on the way during the day and they were eating morning, noon, night, middle of the morning, any other time. And I wonder whether recently that snack food, probably too recently, industry has been grabbed by traditional solid food makers like beef producers and so on and they've tried to turn that into a business. How, how successful has that been in terms of snack foods? Well, in some parts of the world, yes. And arguably, I would say that the Australian industry has a huge opportunity to do something in meat snacking. Um, contrary to what you might believe, meat snacks are an enormous business. So in the United States, sales of meat snacks last year were about three and a half billion US dollars. That's billion with a B. And the growth rate was 12%. And you've probably heard all the conversation there is about plant-based meat substitutes. Well, to put that in some context, the sales of meat snacks were three and a half times bigger than sales of plant-based meat substitutes. Sales of meat substitutes, 1 billion. Sales of meat snacks, 3.5 billion. Growth rate for plant substitutes, about 8%. Growth rate for meat snacks, 10%. And one of the reasons for that is because people are realizing that they need to reduce the amount of sugar in their diet, and some people want to reduce the amount of carbohydrate, and they're looking for snacks that enable them to to avoid those things. And protein has a positive image. And for some people, fat, you know, is, is they've lost their fear of fat. Fat used to be the devil. The sugar's the devil now. And it's not just the Americans. So some people will go, well, that's just the Americans. They're a bit weird. In France, they have traditional meat snacks. 
and the shelf space devoted to meat snacking in France has nearly trebled over the course of the past five years because, and this is the amazing thing, you know, women 16 to 25 like the taste of those things. It enables them to avoid sugar. Protein has a positive image. They're not traditionally terrified about fat. So you've really seen a big surge in sales. And that's true of many other, other countries as well. So I think with the Australian meat industry's provenance story and the high production standards and the Asian market on the doorstep, there's a huge opportunity to create meat snacking, if not for the domestic market, then certainly for the export market. Does that mean that we're actually getting more into the role, though, of being a niche marketer than a feeding the starving millions sort of country? I mean, I, we we think we're a major exporter of beef and, and uh, grains and so on and so forth. But globally, you know, our, our whole production is only what, for example, Canada might export um, in terms of grains and cereals. But So we're not really in that league. But I wonder whether we've been better at actually supplying a niche to a growing middle class up in Asia than we have been in actually helping with the food security of the world. I think that's a really good point. And I think it's an easy mistake for agricultural producers to make is to think in terms of volume the whole time, because historically, that's how it was. But in fact, the best way to make money is by serving the value added niches. So I'll give you an example, Um, a dairy company who are a customer of ours, they were producing commodity milk for supermarket owned label. And they were making 1% profit margin. And with our help, they moved into value-added dairy products with their surplus milk. So they kept the base of commodity and they moved into value-added. And their sales went up, not an enormous amount compared to the volume, but their profit margin went up. So their profit margin went up from 1% to 4.5%. And that is the most compelling reason to look at all these value-added areas where the volume seems small. It's because the value is high. Smart people will always focus on value over volume. And it's not to say you replace your volume. You can still do your volume business, but this is a way of improving your margins alongside it. Because if, you, if you're spending all the time chasing the commodity price, you become what um, a great boss of mine once said, called a busy fool, constantly chasing a lot of business to not have much to show for it. And I think if you look around at lots of agricultural success stories, whether it's the kiwi fruit from New Zealand, for example, or their their manuka honey business, that's all about selling premium product in low volumes into premium markets in Asia, notably, um, where there's an ever-growing number of consumers with high disposable income eager to try things with provenance and taste. It's a great opportunity, I think, for all Australian producers, no matter what category you're in, whether it's meat or dairy or anything else, to actually cater more to those particular markets and find a way to improve your margins by doing so. So when a client comes to you and says, you know, I want to to cater find a trend, find my niche and do that. How does new nutrition business go about making the predictions and giving them the advice that they need? Well, the good thing is because we're specialists and been doing this a long time and most of my team have knowledge, often when companies come to us with a question, we can answer it almost immediately. Uh, And that puts us in a very unique position. So um, to give you a concrete example, a New Zealand company who are in the horticulture business came to us recently and they want to find a value-added market for something to do with their horticultural product, with their, let's call it a vegetable. And um, we were essentially able to supply the answers for them with just two or three hours of work. 
So the way we work with a company like that is we have a like a web call as often as they want or once a quarter, and we answer any questions they've got using our existing knowledge. And if extra information is needed, then we'll find a way to, to go and get that for them. So because we've all done the job, you know, I, I'm not a consultant by nature. I was a marketer, you know, and I, I grew up on a farm. So we've done the job. So we know that people need practical solutions, and that's what we work on doing. And that's why we've been around so long, and we've kept our customers for most of the time. So given a lot of, a lot of farmers and producers won't have your experience, what do you suggest they do to distinguish between you know, what's a current fad and what's actually in a trend that's in for the long haul that's worth them trying to take advantage of? Well, the first thing you do is you ask people like us, because we have all the information at our fingertips. So to take the example of the New Zealand company with its horticultural product, we are simply able to go and have a look and see which countries are adopting that particular vegetable and whether they're selling it fresh, whether it's being incorporated into other products. We can see what prices they're getting for it. And we can also see what consumers are doing. So an important thing to do is to go onto social media. And it's really interesting to see what people are posting and saying about your product. So these things give you clues as to what's evolving. And, and there's a lot more behind that. The next stage is provided the, let's call it Apple you're producing, ties up with what people are looking for, then you have to just produce it in the way that makes it convenient for people. So there's a brand in New Zealand called Rocket, R-O-C-K-I-T, and they sell tiny apples in plastic tubes as snack apples. So that's a perfect example of, of delivering to the long-term trend for snackification. People don't want a big apple. Many of them want a small apple they can easily consume on the go, give to the kids. So they understood that and they created a packaging format that met that particular consumer need. And then beyond the, the packaging format, there's you do have to invest behind your product. You can't simply throw it at the marketplace. So the successful people will understand it, that you, you pick off a target market initially and you invest behind it. And it doesn't have to be millions. But you do have to be quite serious about it. You have to take a long-term view. But in agriculture, that's pretty normal. You know, there's no such thing as get rich quick in agriculture. So as long as you're willing to take a seven to 10-year horizon on building up a business seriously, then lots of people do that and they do that all the time. And sometimes as you're building it up, you find there are particular niches you can serve better. So the New Zealand blackcurrant growers, for example, they've discovered the science says that blackcurrant actually has a, a role in improving sports performance. And there's even some science floating around to back that up. And what's one of the biggest trends? It's sportification. You know, the whole world loves sport. People wear sports clothes all the time. They wear trainers to work. They walk around with bags with sports brands written on them. And they like foods that have a connection to sports. So a lot of the biggest successes are about making a connection to sport. So you're from New Zealand or Australia, and you've got a natural product you can legitimately make that connection to sports with people. So the New Zealand blackcurrant growers are really getting in a progress in their business because they've got something that works for sports and they have the sports image to go with. So you bring all these parts together, like putting a jigsaw puzzle together, if you like. Just like a jigsaw puzzle, all the parts have been pre-printed. They're just face down. You just have to turn them the right way up and figure out how to fit them together. Mm. So uh, taking Australia now specifically, what advantages, particularly unique advantages that does Australia have 
that it should be, um, uh, you know, exploiting. I mean, we've had some unusual successes here. Rice would be one of them. I mean, we, we, you would not think Australia would be across the second driest continent in the world after Antarctica. You would not think Australia would be a place where we would grow rice, and yet we've become um, one of the successful growers of specific strains of rice very efficiently, um, and we export a lot of that rice to countries who grow heaps of rice themselves. I mean, uh, what, why, why is that and, and why is Australia unique and what advantage does it have? Um, I think there's, there's two things you, you touched on there. One is this notion of selecting strains. So that's really important. So you have access to a tremendous research base in food and agriculture to help growers select the best possible variety that will give them a competitive advantage in the market. And that is quite rare. And there are most countries of the world don't have that. So I think taking that science-based approach of let's understand what strains are available that will give me the yield I want and also match the consumer's expectations. And the other side is provenance. So if you have a product that performs fabulously on taste, texture, um, shelf life, whatever it is you're looking for, based in the, the technology and the science on the other side, the provenance of Australia is very compelling because Australia means natural, clean, green, quality, safety, and all those things that the wealthier Asian and Middle Eastern consumer is looking for. So if you, if you build your business on those two propositions, then you can't go too far off. So are we better off just doing that or are we not value adding enough to our products as well? Um, and I think it is a common problem that producers don't add enough value. And though this is the point at which a lot of people kind of shy away because actually the fact is, the closer you stand to the consumer, the more money you make. And the further away you are from the consumer, the less money you make. And all farmers experience this. So the best way really to make money would be to create branded products in the final market. Dairy cooperatives, for example, have really struggled with doing this because farmers know how to run farms. They don't know how to create brands. And they're often terrified by the amount of money that's being put into them uh, to create a brand. And Fonterra is a good example of this. You know, they created a couple of very successful consumer brands in Asia about 20 years ago. Anlene is one of them, for example. And they've never really done as well since then. In fact, their branded business is a bit kind of so-so. And that's because the farmers essentially didn't understand they needed to invest long-term in building the brand. Uh, and I, I often say to people, you know, a farmer being responsible for making decisions about brands is about as much sense as me running a dairy farm. You know, I'd kill all the cows in six months. And essentially, farmers kill the brands because they, they don't understand what they're doing. But so these days, there's lots of scope for producers to work with people who do understand brands and use a different business model to take the product to market. So to give you an example, in Sweden, the oat farmers, they grow oats. They grow all types of oats. They're really good at it. And there's a, an, a brand of oat milk, which you've probably seen, called Oatly, O-A-T-L-Y. But the, Swe the Swedish farmers own about 45% of that business. So they're not responsible for the, for the branding. They supply the raw material. They've put some capital in, and they've hired the people to build the brand for them. And that's a $200 million turnover business. So I think there's lots of ways of, of adding value that involve better business models, creating brands, and where you can reduce your risk by putting in some of the capital, but not all of the capital. So it needs a, that kind of creative approach to it. But certainly just sitting and, and expecting to ship to the farm gate and always get a premium price at that point is a loser's strategy in the long run. So, I mean, I guess it's obvious from an Australian point of view that, that you said the closer to the consumer you are, the better. I mean, we're a remote country. We're thousands of kilometres from our nearest major 
purchaser, unlike Sweden or England or any of the European countries who just are very close to, you know, all their markets. Um, well, let me correct what I said. By, by, by standing close to the consumer, I don't mean physically, I don't mean geographically, I mean by having your product on the shelf where they go shopping. So it really doesn't matter. You can be in Timbuktu, but if your product is on the shelf where the people go shopping, that's the proximity that you need. And you see that, let's take Zespri kiwi fruit grown in New Zealand. You know, it's 12 hours flying time to China. What is it? A couple of weeks on the ship. But actually, it's a premium successful product in the Chinese market and in lots of other Asian markets. So it's important just to forget geography. It's about taking your brand to the consumer, putting it in the, in the supermarket, and that's where you capture value. And it really doesn't matter, doesn't matter where you are, as long as your product is available to them. Okay, I hear that. Is there, so is there more opportunity, though, for us overseas, or should we be doing really the, the Australian consumers see most of their opportunity being in local consumption? Uh, there's no reason why you can't do both, and in fact, in marketing terms, it's wise. The Australian uh, retail market is a little bit challenging because it's, it's dominated by those two big retail groups. You don't have in, many independents where you can take new ideas. But if you get your brand into independent distribution, the volumes will be low. By itself, it won't be worth very much. But it then gives you a platform when you talk in international markets to say, look, we're an Australian brand. We sell it in you know, wherever, whichever the, the local stores are, and we'd like to take it to your market. And that gives you credibility. And you'll actually make most of your money and most of your volume from the overseas market. So to give an example, there is um, uh, an infant formula company in England in an area called the Lake District, tiny business. I think their turnover originally was only about a million a year. And they weren't, in, they weren't really an infant formula. They were just running a milk dryer. So they created an infant formula. They put it into retail in the UK. They couldn't get distribution in the big retailers. So they went to all tiny independents. And on the back of that, they then went to Singapore, China, and other countries and said, here we are. We're a traditional regional brand with provenance and identity. And then they moved into those markets. And those markets now account for 90% of their business. And I imagine a lot more than that in terms of their profit. So that's, that's a really good model for anyone to follow. So are there any gaps internationally or indeed locally that we should be filling or taking advantage of here? We've become very conscious of how dependent we've been on China with this whole COVID thing and also with the political stoush that's going on with China at the moment. And suddenly we see, but hang on, uh, you know, the people who buy 70% of our wool uh, are now, you know, we've got Navy ships for driving around their coastline challenging them. You know, what what's happening here? We need to be more diverse. So what are, are there anything we're opportunities we're missing? That's a very good question. You're right that China has been too much of a focus for the past 20 years. It, it's fully understandable why, because it's been such a, such a growth market. When people go into China, actually, they don't go into the whole country. They end up going into one or two cities because that's big enough to tackle. The world is full of major cities where you can pick off a premium motivated consumer. So Singapore is a great place to go after. Dubai is a good place to go after. Um, you might pick selected cities in Europe or selected cities in the United States. So I think there are, there are quite a few places to go. None of them by themselves looks as exciting or as big as, as China. But what many companies do is they have a, a niche and multiple market strategy. So they will set out to have a niche position in maybe five or 10 different countries in the right distribution channels where there's the right type of consumer. That spreads their risk. Everyone knows how important it is as a business to spread your risk. If anything goes wrong with any one market, they still got business from the other nine. And it enables you to learn as you go along. So you can pick off a city 
and do well in that and move somewhere else. So to give you an example, there's a dairy farm in Wales, a small family business, and they produce um, aseptically packaged milk, chocolate milk. And apart from selling it in Wales, they sell it in Dubai. So they built their market in that one city. And then next, they were able to move to Riyadh and move to Jeddah. And they were able to move up to Kuwait. So this small business, step by step, picking off individual wealthy cities with the right sort of people, with the right type of disposable income to buy their premium product. And I think they're in Singapore and Hong Kong now as well. And that's been a steady development over the past five or six years. So that, that again, I'm saying this because these are not, you know, we're not BS merchants. These are all proven strategies that people actually follow to make success. You just have to be patient, do it step by step, and take that very focused approach where you say, I'm going after high value, low volume in selected markets and building steadily from there. Well, Julian, you've taken us a fascinating journey through the history, if you like, of food trends. I wonder if I could finish by asking you what you think is going to happen in terms of food trends, say, over the next five years, 10 years. I don't know how far out you can predict trends, but, um, you know, that's probably the the $64 million question for for Australian agriculture. Well, the good news is everything is lined up. The stars are actually lined up very well for Australian producers. So let's take the plant-based trend. People know they need to have more vegetables and fruits in their diet. That is a big growth area. What's very interesting is the number of of, uh, people in the food industry who are figuring out how to incorporate more plants, more vegetables, more fruits into other product types. So in Finland, you've got a bread, for example, that's 30% vegetables. So that's that's the direction of of travel. And to participate in that, Australian horticultural growers will have to figure out how not just to sell fresh, but how to sell a value-added ingredient that people can incorporate into other products. Dairy is also on the up. You know, We've heard about liquid milk consumption going down, but all forms of value-added dairy are increasing everywhere, particularly in the United States, particularly in Asia. Um, so the demand for whey protein, for example, is good, and that's not going to go down. Okay, protein is the nutrient that can, that can do no wrong. And you find it added to all kinds of things now, like ice cream and bars and heaven knows what else. And the other thing about um, about protein is that's that whole health halo has reflected over onto meat as well. So you know, meat sales in Europe actually have increased over the past few years. Meat sales in the United States have gone up steadily for 10 or 15 years. They're increasing steadily in Asia. So this whole message that people get that we're all switching to have plant-based burgers and people aren't eating meat is entirely wrong because Meat has a tremendous health halo, actually, for lots of people to do with protein, to do with these nutrients. They've lost their fear of fat. It tastes great. You know, you made the point yourself. You can use it to flavor other things. So all of those things are in growth, and all of those things will continue to be in growth for at least the next five years. Well, thank you very much, Julian. As I say, a fascinating insight and one that I think probably doesn't exist in many places in the world. So we appreciate your time today as our Agriminder. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, Chris. Understanding and predicting food trends sounds a bit like forecasting the weather, fraught with risk, myth, and a bit of mystery. However, Julian, in a probably globally unique way, has turned it into a science, and it is clearly a valuable tool for farmers and indeed retailers today. Walt Disney said, The customer's not always right, but the customer's always the customer. So farmers need to pay attention to these trends and to the perceptions, even if it doesn't make production sense to them. 
I'm Chris Russell. Join us again on AgriMinders. Special thanks to the AgriMinds Think Tank Group. AgriMinders was presented by Chris Russell and produced in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Produced by Jennifer Goggin, edited by Lindsay Green and with sound production by Matt Nikolich. Listener.